Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Friends and neighbors, welcome back to the Bill Press Pod and welcome to this week's roundtable. Coming to you this Thursday morning, July 17, around 8.30 a.m., just about the time Joe Biden's expected back in the Oval Office after returning home last night from his whirlwind diplomatic fan dance, bucking up the G7, romancing the Queen, reaffirming ties with NATO, and stepping into the lion's den with Vladimir Putin. Was anything accomplished, and how did Biden do on the world stage? Meanwhile, back here at home, except for the temperatures in the West and the Southwest climbing to record highs, things continue more or less at a standstill. While bipartisan negotiations continue on an infrastructure bill, many Democrats are getting antsy and ready to go it alone. Mitch McConnell vows to block Biden from putting anybody on the Supreme Court, and Republicans, led by Tucker Carlson, now float a new conspiracy theory that January 6th was actually an inside job engineered by the FBI. Yes, here today to help us sort it all out, Pema Levy, politics reporter for Mother Jones. Hi, Pema. Hi, Bill. Thanks for having me. All right. Welcome back. Jeff Dufour is editor-in-chief of the National Journal. Hello, Jeff. Good morning, Bill. And Alex Eitzwald, back again, political reporter for MSNBC and NBC News. Hi, Alex. Morning, Bill. Thanks for having me. Okay, well, let's start with the summit, of course, has been dominating the news for the last couple of days. The president held a news conference uh, uh, after Vladimir Putin had had his news conference, and the president said, here's uh, how I sum it up. It was important to meet in person. So there can be no mistake about or misrepresentations about what I wanted to communicate. I did what I came to do. Number one, identify areas of practical work our two countries can do to advance our mutual interest and also benefit the world. Two, communicate directly, directly, that the United States will respond to actions that impair our vital interest or those of our allies. And three, to clearly lay out our country's priorities and our values. So we heard it straight from me. So Pema, uh, the big event in, in Geneva certainly gave the networks a chance to uh, highlight their lead anchors and put on a good show. But otherwise, uh, anything come out of the Geneva summit? It it doesn't look like anything big came out of it. I think the takeaway here is that the relationship between Russia and the United States is at its lowest point since the Cold War, and nothing happened to change that. Um, there are obviously <laughs> uh, big things that stand in the way here. I mean, we're talking about um, 
uh, Russia, which has, you know, in, through its cyber capabilities, attacked us repeatedly recently, um, including influencing our elections. And it doesn't look like there was progress on that front. So that's sort of an enormous elephant in the room here. Um, that doesn't mean it's not worthwhile to to meet and, uh, you know, try to begin to forge a path forward. But, you know, Putin's agenda here at, at this point is... is um, it's very much his own agenda. <laughs> you know, he's he's not necessarily clamoring to get back into the good graces of the United States right now. So I think that there's uh, really a gulf here between the two countries. Uh, Jeff Dufer, um, did it, uh, the summit, I, I saw the Drudge headline was no hostility, but no friendship either. I mean, was was that what it was all about, basically giving these two guys a chance to size each other up and, and maybe even learn some respect for each other? Yeah. And, and I think Biden played it, played it smart. He's the fifth U.S. president to meet with Putin. Remember? Yeah. And, and the, the fallacy, I think, of the previous four was to think they could accomplish something substantive, whereas Putin just looks at these as propaganda opportunities. You know, remember when he, you know, Bush 43 said he looked Putin in the eye and was able to get a sense of his soul. Um, Obama struggled to get a word in edgewise at, at a couple of these meetings. And then obviously we know what happened with Trump. Um, but, but Biden played it a little bit smarter and he managed expectations ahead of time. He said, we didn't expect any deliverables, the White House said, which is a mm -hmm. word choice that I really loved. Uh, <laughs> and, he, and he refused the joint press conference, which um, Fiona Hill said this week that that's where Putin likes to make most of his of right. mischief. Um, and afterward, you had the mostly platitudes, like we heard, like we heard from Biden, reaffirming NATO, saying cyber attacks would be met with with uh, like-minded uh, attacks. Uh, so the, the bottom line, I think, is Biden didn't play Putin's game the way his predecessors did, and that that might be enough to call it a win, at least politically on, on the world stage. Well, Alex, there is a big domestic audience for this too, of course. Uh, how, how does this help Biden, or does it help Biden politically? Well, I mean, the bar was so low uh, for him <laughs> going into this, like with so much of his presidency, where compared to his predecessor, Donald Trump, just by doing kind of the basics uh, that, you know, we have expected from presidents, from many presidents, both parties before Trump, just by returning to that kind of normal sense of, you know, not uh, siding with the Russian president over your own intelligence agencies and the FBI, uh, as Trump did in Helsinki, uh, you know, he 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 gets some points for, for just kind of doing what we would have considered uh, the most basic job <laughs> in the past. Um, but, you know, politically, I, it's, uh, I, I don't know that there's like a, a lot of upside potential. There's a lot of downside potential that I think he mitigated uh, mm -hmm. fairly effectively. You know, there's still a large chunk of the Republican Party that, despite the, the years of Trump, is still very skeptical of Russia and is eager to, to blame uh, Democrats for being too soft on on Russia as they did for Obama, and there's a lot of Democrats who you know think Putin is uh, swung the 2016 election is is kind of evil. So uh, you know he wants to to try to make some kind of progress, cut some kind of deals, uh, but he has to do it without looking like he's being too friendly to Putin or giving too much ground to Putin. So I think yeah, the 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 optics here: meeting in Geneva, not meeting in Russia, not doing the joint press conference. Uh, I think this the, the the win is to not mess up, and I think he he gets a, a, a points for doing that. 
Yeah, Pamela, what about that uh, not having a joint news conference? Some people said that it, uh, some Republicans criticized Biden just saying it showed that he was too weak. He was afraid to appear side by side with Putin. Uh, was that a smart move on Biden's part or, or a mistake? I, I think it was a, a smart move on Biden's part. I mean, look, there's nothing that Biden can do that would mean that, that no Republicans have a way to criticize him for it, right? I mean, yeah, they are right. the opposition party here. So, uh, you know, they will, you know, he can be too friendly, he can be too soft, he can be too mean, uh, you know, whichever direction they want, they want to take it, they can. Uh, but, you know, I, I definitely agree with Jeff and Alex. I mean, there's a tricky dance here, I think, you know, particularly with Democrats, but also with some more some Republicans who are, who want a more hard line against Russia, right? Which is, you know, even by going ahead and meeting with him, you know, even by shaking his hand, um, you are sort of giving him the benefit of the doubt after um, years of what have been like really destructive Russian intervention in this country. Um, mm -hmm. And so I think, you know, even agreeing to this one-on-one um, -on -one, one -on -one meeting and, and, you know, trying to hash out, um, you know, goals going forward, um, is in some, on some level could be seen as soft, right? Could be seen as right. um, conciliatory to someone uh, who does not certainly have the best interests of the United States at heart. So I think that by not doing the joint press conference, you're still distancing your, yourself from that person and sort of saying, you know, we're moving slowly here. We might be rebuilding trust, but we're not ready for the joint press conference yet. And I think that that was the right move, even if you know, if a small number of people can find a way to criticize him for it. Right. And as we know, the big news that came out of Biden's news conference was not the news conference itself, but the question that was shouted at him as he walked away from the podium. Rule number one, when you walk away from the podium, keep going, don't turn around and answer that shouted question. Uh, but that question came from Caitlin Collins from CNN. Um, here it is. And Biden's response. Why are you so I said, what will change their behavior is that the rest of the world reacts to them and it diminishes their standing in the world. I'm not confident of anything. I'm just stating the fact. So a pretty pissy response. Jeff, was it a fair question? Uh, it, it was a fair question, but to your point, Biden can't engage like that. I, I'm, I'm sure he was tired. I'm sure he thinks it's two o'clock in the morning when it's two o'clock in the afternoon or what what have you. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then later he did say he he apologized. He said, I want to apologize to the reporter. I was a wise guy. He was the, the typical avuncular Biden response. But I watched a little bit of Fox last night, and that's exactly what everyone is, is yeah. going to seize on that he, he lost his temper here. He can't handle uh, a simple question from a reporter. And by the way, uh, Fox News was really something last night. <laughs> they, 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 you, to watch it, you would have thought that Biden had just given away the store to Vladimir Putin, that he, had just give, that he had given Putin the keys to the nuclear codes. It's a sad day for America. Nothing will ever be the same again. I'm seriously. Which... The contrast for four years ago, it's 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 really remarkable that they would say that. But nevertheless, that, that that's where we are. Yeah. Alex, I've always felt as a White House reporter myself that there's no such thing as an unfair question. Right. Um, um, uh, anything anything goes. I thought she asked a, a fair question. And 
I guess even Biden has a uh, has a right to get pissed off once in a while. But it is unusual to see a president, A, get pissed off, and B, apologize so soon afterwards. Yeah, it's definitely unusual. It's also, it's very Joe Biden. Uh, I mean, he does have a temper that is kind of like lurking right underneath the surface of that avuncular uh, personality. And I, I remember seeing him, uh, you know, in Iowa on the campaign trail, doing something like this. There's one one time in particular that stands out, Ed O'Keefe from uh, CBS mm-hmm. asked him something. I think it was a, a day when Hunter Biden was in the news and he kind of came back kind of mocking Ed O'Keefe's question and then later apologized uh, for it, a similar thing. So, you know, I think uh, every president has probably had a moment where they want to say something like Joe Biden did, every every senator, you know, any, any public official who gets questions from reporters, even if they're fair, uh, I'm sure they have they have to bite their tongue all the time, and in this case, he just uh, did not succeed in biting his tongue, um, which is yeah, that's not good. I mean, you know, we we want our presidents to treat the the press respectfully, uh, but it would give him credit for for coming back and and you know cleaning it up uh, later. I, it's it's the kind of thing where you know I, I don't think this is going to um, affect White House press relations in the long term yeah. because it's it's a uh, it's the kind of thing that I think everybody understands that that's probably what they say privately. He just said it <laughs> publicly this time. Well, my favorite part of the whole uh, whole summit was that uh, Joe Biden gave Vladimir Putin a pair of aviator sunglasses. So there they are. They are uh, brothers in aviator sunglasses from from now on. Let's coming back here at home, where uh, to say the least, um, the. Um, the tension on Capitol Hill and the hostility on Capitol Hill is very real and palpable. Uh, John Barrasso, senator from Wyoming, uh, may be speaking for a lot of his colleagues, Republican senator from Wyoming, may be speaking for a lot of his Republican colleagues, kind of summed it up this week and how they feel about working together with Joe Biden. Mitch McConnell's come under a lot of criticism for saying he wanted, at one point he said he wanted to make sure that Barack Obama was a one-term president. I want to make Joe Biden a one-half-term president. <laughs> I'm not sure how we do that, a one-half-term president. Uh, but, Pema, does this mean, let's start with infrastructure, that getting anything done in a bipartisan way is out of the question? Well, I don't know if it's out of the question, but I do think it really puts a point on whether or not Republicans are going to really come to the table in good faith here and whether or not it's worth Democrats' time to be doing what they're doing, which is you know pursuing um, a bipartisan infrastructure deal. Um I think there are a handful of Republicans that are probably at this in good faith because they are (laughs) attending these meetings and part of developing a bipartisan deal. Um, That deal is a very far cry from what Biden initially proposed. Uh, And I think that, and it's taken (laughs) months, right? And we're nowhere close to figuring out what is going to ultimately happen, if anything. So, you know, (laughs) I think what... What I take from from Barrasso's point here is is they're kind of already doing it, right? I mean, if the point is just like we don't want anything to happen, and then we want to win in the midterms so that he's basically a lame duck for the last two years, uh, you know, stalling in Congress on his uh, you know major uh, policy proposals is 
is the, the way to do it. Uh, so, so, so yeah, I mean, I, I think this is not a surprise and I think this is where you see a lot of frustration from the left, which is why are we negotiating on something that's like a quarter of what we mm-hmm. wanted? It leaves out, you know, so many of our big priorities in terms of, um, you know, everything from like childcare to the environment, right. Is, is off the table in these talks. Um, and I think you're also seeing, you know, again, to Brasso's point here, you're actually seeing his strategy work because there's actually polling out saying Biden's popularity has taken a hit. Congress's popularity has taken a hit, right. I mean, sort of the longer these things go on, um, the more people think, oh, you know, Biden can't get anything done. Washington can't get anything done. So, you know, it's definitely in Republicans' interest to sort of drag out these talks as much as possible. Well, well, Jeff, the first uh, Republican proposal uh, attempt to reach uh, an agreement with the Biden administration under uh, Shelley Moore Capito from West Virginia failed. But this uh, this bipartisan group of senators and their proposal, I saw this morning, they're now up to uh, 21 senators, yeah. 10 Democrats and 11 Republicans supporting it. So um, I understand... Pema's point, but maybe there is a glimmer of hope here. It's 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 exceeding my expectations at the moment. Uh, <laughs> very, under, very let's underline, stated. yeah, let's underline at the moment because there's a long way to go. Um, the the key is if they can get the leaders on board. Um, John Thune seems to be interested. Um, if they can get Schumer and McConnell with a lip, not to say necessarily that they would even whip the vote, but if they can get them interested and, and not kill it, um, if they can pull this off, it would be beyond anybody's expectations in terms of a bipartisan victory in, in this kind of climate. And that's exactly why I remain skeptical, really. Um, mm-hmm. be, because then look down the line, it really forces the House to assemble a similar type of coalition. You've got the, the folks on the left who are never going to go for it. In the Senate, you've got not just Sanders and Markey, but Martin Heinrich from New Mexico came out against this yesterday because there's not enough environmental commitments. And the folks on the right who think that suddenly they have religion on, uh, on deficits and they think it's too expensive. You're going to see the exact same thing in the House. And there you're going to get even less Republican buy-in because, and, and maybe even less progressive buy-in because the the each one of the ideological wings are are more numerous and more uh, vociferous in their in their objections. Uh, so you might be able to assemble this coalition in the Senate. I'm skeptical that you can assemble it again in the House. Right. And Alex, this whole deal uh, does seem to hinge on, uh, which many progressives are saying, uh, Democrats are saying, also on a um, on a follow up bill, right? A second bill which will have all the stuff that's taken out of this on climate change and childcare and other stuff in it. Uh, and the Democrats saying that they're not going to pass with this bipartisan compromise unless they're sure the follow-up is coming along. Right. Right. And it's a, it's a bit of a, a, a chicken and egg situation because, uh, you know, you, you, I've heard arguments made on either way. One argument is, well, just take this while you can. And then, you know, try to get the, the tougher stuff which is all the stuff you're talking about, the, the human infrastructure, yeah. so to speak, mm-hmm. the climate change, try to get that later, but just take the, the bird in the hand now. But then the counter argument to that is, well, all that stuff is the, the harder stuff to pass. So why would you separate it and make it a standalone bill? Uh, instead, you know, fold it into the more popular traditional infrastructure stuff and, and force 
Joe Manchin and Cinema and you know the other moderate Dems to take a vote on the whole thing all at once. Uh, so that's the kind of I think the, the the big strategic question right now that the White House and Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi face uh, is do they if this bipartisan deal is real and it it does seem like there's more forward motion on it than some of the other recent deals. If it's real, do they take it uh, and risk the other stuff, the, the the human infrastructure stuff, or do they say no deal and uh, you know try to roll it all together? Mm-hmm. My, my guess is if they really can get the bipartisan deal, they'll take it, even if it means sacrificing the, the other stuff. Yeah. Jeff, let me come back to you for just a sec, because the other big issue um, on the table is voting rights. Uh, Joe Manchin sort of stunned everybody last week by saying, there's no way I'm going to vote for the For the People Act. Uh, But now he's come out with a compromise that he's proposing. Here is what I will vote for and what I'd like to see in a voting rights act. Uh, Does that raise your expectations for some kind of a voting rights act to get through the Senate? Uh, potentially, I, 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 <laughs> okay. I, 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 I have to hedge on this stuff because I remain, I remain skeptical about anything big getting through this Congress. Um, I, I was truthfully surprised that the For the People Act was, uh, was, was pushed seriously as a piece of legislation in this Congress. Because remember, it was written, what, uh, three or four years ago as a messaging bill. Uh, was just... Yeah. For, for, for Democrats to, to essentially make the point and, and give them something to run on. And now all of a sudden it's become something that, that, they're, that they're trying to pass. Um, it, it is, it's a, it's a much bigger and, and more uh, ambitious bill than say the John Lewis Act, which is much more tailored. Uh, so I think there, there does seem to be a critical mass of, of members who are uh, amenable to something like the John Lewis bill. Uh, and if they can join forces with Manchin, uh, m- maybe there's a path. Uh, but uh, again, I'll, I'll believe it when I see it, put it that way. And it looks like Manchin is trying to say, look, I'm not totally against voting rights. I'm not going to vote for right. the big bill, but uh, here's what I can vote for. And right. maybe- the big bill has some has some issues with federalism. Uh, a lot of it would, ha- would end up going to the courts. Uh, in terms of overruling state election law, so so there are there are some real concerns there. Yeah, at the same time, uh, all of us are skeptics, but Congress, uh, maybe defying our skepticism, did actually pass something uh, overwhelmingly this week—a new federal holiday. Uh, let's talk about that with and more with our panel: Pamela Levy, Jeff from uh, Mother Jones, Jeff Dufer, National Journal, and Alex Seitzwald. MSNBC and NBC News after we take a quick break here on the Bill Press Pod. And today's roundtable brought to you by the Iron Workers Union, those good men and women, over half a million strong of the iron workers under President Eric Dean. They are building America's roads and buildings and bridges today and ready to rebuild America's infrastructure tomorrow if, as we just discussed, uh, Congress ever gets its act together. Uh, they are uh, the people who have built uh, some of our most iconic uh, structures in this country, including the Golden Gate Bridge, the St. Louis Arch, the New World Trade Center, and a whole lot more. Check out their website at ironworkers.org. And we thank the members, the good men and women of the Iron Workers, for their support of the Bill Press Pod. 
Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And we're back. Today's panel joining us, Alex Seitzwald from uh, NBC News, Jeff Dufer of the National Journal, Pema Levy on Mother Jones. So, Pema, despite all the skepticism about Congress ever doing anything, uh, they rallied the Senate passing unanimously uh, legislation to create a new national holiday, Juneteenth, a bill which President Biden is going to sign this afternoon at the White House. The first national holiday, new national holiday since 1983, uh, particularly significant uh, at this time to create Juneteenth as a national holiday, Pema, right? Yeah, I mean, I think this is a really good acknowledgement of some of the, the lessons that we have collectively learned here over the past uh, couple of years, and, you know, particularly after last year um, with the death of, or I should say murder of George Floyd and, uh, and, and the, the protests over um, racial inequality and police violence that came out of that. I think it is, it is really important. I, <laughs> my only like, my only like sad point of, of this, which really I do believe is sort of a, we can celebrate this as a, as a nice uh, high, you know, high watermark, something we've actually accomplished here is at first I was sort of like, oh, this is so great because now they're going to teach it in school and say, ah, here's why you have the day off. And, you know, we'll learn more about, you know, the mm. end of slavery and emancipation. And then a friend pointed out like, <laughs> well, actually most people are already out of school at this point. So we oh. might not actually teach it. And I was like, oh, that's. Mm -hmm. That's really a bummer. <laughs> but other than that, um, yeah, I think we can we can finally say, you know, Congress did the, did the right thing here. And I think that, um, you know, I hope that it doesn't just mean, um, oh, and another day off for for people who, you know, work regular, you know, salaried jobs. Um, but it actually comes with some sort of education or way to you know, rethink our, our past and, and, you know, and grapple with, with the, the legacy of slavery and even sort of the slow and horrific way it came to an end. 
so I, I hope that, that 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 part of the work comes next. But right. uh, making it a national holiday is a good first start. Uh, no, a good a good point. And Alex, uh, the downside of this, I guess, is that um, fourteen Republicans voted against making Juneteenth a national holiday, and this, it's also this week. 21 Republicans voted against giving a gold medal to the Capitol Police officers who defended them with their lives, some of them, on January 6th. Is, I mean, come on. Is there an element of the—even Jim Jordan did not vote with them, I must tell you, right? So <laughs> my question, is there a, a little coalition of this Freedom Caucus that's gotten so extreme that they're just—I mean, just totally out of step with the American people? And does it uh, matter? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't think it's really going out too far on a limb to say yes to that. If by the American people you mean all of the American people, because they, I think they see themselves as representing uh, not even the just the Republican Party, but a segment of the Republican Party. The way President Trump, former President Trump, would always talk about it. Um, on the the, the Juneteenth, I, I think it's uh, there's an interesting labor angle here too, which I've heard some folks make. Uh, you know, which is there's a lot of people who would obviously love to see more uh, paid time off, uh, family leave, all that stuff, and that not that this is any kind of replacement for it, but it's it is kind of a backdoor way in to give workers more time off is to create more federal holidays. Uh, so you know, you, it, I think people like not having to work. So even if you don't uh, necessarily agree with this particular holiday, it is kind of surprising to to vote against. You know, a day off of work, uh, but on the Capitol Police, I think what's what's going on there, and on January sixth, is that the, the the this is the mainstream of the Republican Party has realized that there's no way to reconcile what actually happened on January sixth with continuing to uh, embrace Trump and his you know what's been called the big lie about the 2020 election. There's you can watch this cognitive dissonance play out in real time, so they have to find some way to say. It's okay uh, to keep Trump around and to continue to perpetuate these falsehoods about the the twenty twenty election. Uh, while how do well how do we incorporate January sixth into that? Well, just deny that it happened, or deny that it was Trump supporters, or or blame somebody else, or say it was left wing agitators, or say they were just tourists in the Capitol. It wasn't that bad, and you know, pick your flavor. But they're all kind of coming up with their own way to downplay, to deny the reality of what actually happened on January 6th, I think because they, you just can't accept what happened there and continue uh, to push the other falsehood about the 2020 election and, and Donald Trump's claims. Well, and, and as an illustration of how far it seems um, some on the right will go, um, as Alex pointed out, to downplay uh, January 6th. Uh, Jeff, this was uh, Tucker Carlson this week on his show with a whole new conspiracy theory uh, about what really happened on January 6th. Uh, here's Tucker. The events of January 6th that you keep hearing about endlessly, events that Democrats in Congress describe as an act of war carried out by white supremacists, as dangerous and historically significant as Pearl Harbor and 9-11, those events apparently were at least in part organized and carried out in secret by people connected to federal law enforcement. It's hard to think of a bigger potential scandal than this one. Those events on January 6th, potentially carried out by people in federal law enforcement, he was talking about the FBI. Uh, Jeff, anything goes these days, I guess? Uh, 
Sure. And before I get to Tucker, I'm going to go back to um, to the the Capitol Police for a second. Yeah, sure. It just broke this morning that um, D.C. Police Officer Michael Fanone, who was beaten mm-hmm. unconscious on January 6, now says this week he was in an elevator with Congressman Andrew Clyde from Georgia, right? Clyde, who was one of the 21, and Clyde refused to shake his hand, even after yeah. he introduced himself. So, mm. so, so this is what we're dealing with uh, there. But, but back to Tucker. I mean. If you give any act of violence long enough, it becomes a false flag operation. Uh, (laughs) First, as Alex said, first it was undercover Antifa. Then it was just a bunch Mm -hmm. of peaceful folks, not much different from tourists. Now it's undercover FBI agents pulling the puppet strings, which, you know, help me understand this. In other words, the the Proud Boys, the Three Percenters, none of them would have done this were it not for the G-Men egging them on in the background. Is, yeah. is, is that the is that the suggestion? Now, of course, he's he's wrong on the law. Plenty of prosecutors have come out and said federal law doesn't permit undercover agents, cooperating witnesses, informants, et cetera, to be charged with conspiracy. It's not it's not something that's that's permitted by the DOJ. Um, and, and I would also point out there's a host of reasons somebody might not be charged in a conspiracy case. Um Trump himself wasn't charged with obstruction because of a superseding legal principle. Um, sometimes people aren't charged because the government's still building its case against them or because they've struck a deal to testify after the fact. Uh, yet, like so many things we see, it goes from the, the, the conspiracy fever swamps of the internet to Molly Hem- Hemingway to Tucker <laughs> to Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, who spotted off about it yesterday in the course of 24 hours. And there's your there's your new cycle of crazy right there. Right. You know, I remember it reminds me of the of the wacky conspiracy after 9-11 that it was all an inside job uh, uh, you know, engineered by Dick Cheney or by the CIA or somebody. Right. And at the time, that was so crazy. As uh, I remember, I was doing talk radio at the time. People would call in. You know, we would just hang up on them. We wouldn't take their calls. We wouldn't put them on the air. And now this is equally insane. And yet, as you point out, Jeff and the others, it's it's in in the in the mainstream media even right is talking about it. Crazy. Uh, well, let's go to the uh, Supreme Court. Uh, came up again this week. Mitch McConnell appearing on Hugh Hewitt's radio show and defiantly saying, Merrick Garland, you thought that was bad? I'd do it all over again. Here he is. I don't think uh, either party, if it controlled, if it were different from the president, would confirm a Supreme Court nominee in the middle of an election. Uh, So there you go, Pema. Uh, Mitch McConnell seems to uh, change his mind depending on whether it's a Republican or Democratic president in the Oval Office. Yeah, I don't think that you know, even Mitch McConnell really cares to be consistent here, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I mean, he honestly, he kind of relishes his, his reputation here is this is about power and this is about getting our people on the Supreme Court and about winning elections. Period. And period. Right. And, and, and that's what he's going to, going to do. And, you know, I think, (laughs) you know, back to what we were talking about before with infrastructure, I think this is where there's so much distrust on, on the left here, which is, you know, they want to make our presidents one-term presidents and they want to get their people in the Supreme Court and they're just going to act in their self-interest. So why are we bending over backward here to to accommodate them? But, but yeah, I mean, you know, <laughs> don't be surprised if there's a replay of 
you know, what happened with Justice Scalia's seat um, oh. in the next few years. Oh, absolutely. Could uh, Alex, could this backfire by motivating Democrats to, to really turn out in greater numbers in the midterms? It's possible, uh, but at least historically, Republicans have been more likely to vote based on the Supreme Court and, and the judiciary and judges than Democrats have in the past. And I think Democrats have had a harder time uh, explaining to their voters the importance of the courts, have, have had a harder time making the issue salient. I mean, you know, the Merrick Garland seat was left open during the entire uh, 2016 election, and it was not really... It was a thing that Hillary Clinton would talk about sometimes, Barack Obama would talk about sometimes, but it was not, you know, their number one, two, or three mm -hmm. issue. Um, that might be changing uh, now that Roe is is really, yeah. you know, in jeopardy. Um, but I, the the kind of like structural basics here is that you know the court is is mainly uh, mainly has power to overturn laws, and Congress mainly has power to make laws. And so if you're conservative who wants less laws, less government, then the courts are going to be kind of a, a more favorable venue for you. Um, but, you know, I, I think there's one person who is the audience uh, for this that probably Joe Biden and a lot of Democrats are are hoping are listening to Mitch McConnell's comments, who's Justice Breyer. Uh -huh. uh, you know, the, I think there's a lot of Democrats who very quietly are thinking or, or not so quietly, well, boy, now would be a great time for you to retire and uh, get that seat open, you know, while there's still a possibility to, to confirm a new nominee uh, or else we could end up in an all too familiar situation that we uh, have been in now with McConnell yeah. holding that seat hostage. Uh, Jeff, what about that? I mean, it hasn't been so quiet. I saw uh, somewhere last week there was a crowd that was chanting, Briar, retire, Briar, retire. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and if he doesn't fill it, uh, that's – and you wind up with eight justices. Now you have <clears> – <throat> excuse me. Now you have a real, real conservative majority uh, with – I think it would be seven, right, if there were another conservative on there, right? Now uh, there's six, if you count Roberts. Right. So right? it would be yeah. it would be six to two with a with an eight justice court in the meantime. Oh, got it. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Uh, which is, let's say you have an eight justice court for potentially two years. Uh, that's that's really significant in in terms of of, of how yeah. it might affect the um, how it might affect the rulings. Yeah. Uh, and again, it seems to me that if that doesn't motivate Democrats to get out and vote, what would? But uh, as Alex says, that hasn't always proven true uh, in the past. Uh, before we uh, end up our discussion of the issues and get into your favorite stories of the week, I do have to, I'd like to get each of you that your take on what we now hear more and more about this phrase, critical race theory, CRT, they're even calling it. Uh, it even became an issue this week in the Southern Baptist Convention down in, in Nashville. One of the leaders for president uh, that was accused of, of teaching CRT in his diocese or in his, in, in his church. Critical race theory, what the hell is it? And is it really a viable political issue? Pema, you want to start us off? Each of you, well, give, us, give us your take on it. <laughs> well, it's certainly a viable political issue because they're really running with it. You know, I think there was a, a survey recently from, from Media Matters, which is a, 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 a left-leaning watchdog, and they found that, you know, in the last three months, Fox News has mentioned this new boogeyman like 1,300 times or something. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, and they kind of 
this is, you know, one of these things where there's like, we're going to gin up fear over something, um, and, and get people all upset about it. And I mean, look, one of the things that they get people all upset about is race and like what we're teaching children. <laughs> so yeah. it's kind of like the perfect storm for them to sort of but be able to freak out, um, you know, conservative viewers. And I think as to what is critical race theory, I think on some level, like the point is that it's hard to define, right? Because then anything can be critical race theory, right? Anything can be, um, you know, this dangerous ideology that, you know, that white people aren't as, as good and always haven't been as, as good as, as, uh, we like to believe, um, you know, that our country <laughs> may have some systemic problems with race that continue to shape our society. Uh, and you know, those are, are ideas that they want you to think are, are scary, um, and that will destroy the country. And so that's sort of this like amorphous cloud of fear, uh, that I think is, is certainly, you know, politically viable, uh, for as long as they want to make that into a boogeyman and, and talk about that instead of, you know, uh, actual policy concerns. Uh, at the same time, Jeff, isn't it just basically accepting the fact that there's a lot of built in racism in this, in the, in the history of this country that we cannot deny and just sort of have to acknowledge? Well, or is that too sure. naive? I mean, critical, I mean, critical race theory is essentially a catch-all term for these uh, this academic, a set of academic theories that posit on one level or another that race should be central to whatever you're you're discussing. And there's uh, there's gradations of it, of course. Uh, you know, some academics would would have this. You can't talk about anything without talking about race, mm -hmm. and, and some of it is a little more subtle than that. As a political issue. Um, I wish I could credit them properly. I don't remember who wrote it, but someone wrote that this was just like the Sharia law scare of five years yeah, ago. Remember yeah. this? You know, yes. Sharia law has just been, been declared in Dayton, Ohio, and Dubuque, Iowa. And, <laughs> and your town is next. You you're going to be burned at the stake. Um, but I, I also get why Republicans do are doing it because it smells like a political winner. Um, the the Democrats are now starting to turn in a lot of their after action reports. Uh, from the 2020 elections, their autopsies. And I've seen two or three of these, and they all, each one of them makes the point that uh, all the talk of defunding the police, uh, socialism, et cetera, all made a difference, that it mm -hmm. did motivate independent voters to swing away from Democrats in the waning days of the race. Uh, so Republicans certainly recognize that, and they, they think that this is a, a viable issue like that that they can run with. Have you done any polling on this, Alex? Have you seen any polling that critical race theory really cuts through as a winning political issue? Uh, I haven't. It's a good question. I, I would guess that, you know, basically any polling from more than, I don't know, a month ago, you would have a, a huge majority of people who had just no familiarity with that term and wouldn't really have an yeah. opinion on it. Um, I think it's gained a lot of salience very recently. Uh, but I don't think it's a it's a general election issue. I think it's a primary issue for Republicans. I mean, it's about their it's about the base, not about, you know, winning uh, the diminishing number of swing voters. Um, it, yeah, the Sharia law is a great that's a great comparison. It also reminds me of the Common Core uh, freakout moment around the Tea Party kind of era, and I think all of this stuff—you know—you're you're talking about education, kids. It's very emotional. It's very personal, and it reflects the moment 
that you're in. So in the the Tea Party era, it was all about the federal government and uh, you know too too much spending and central control. That was a kind of libertarian inflected moment. And so this idea of Common Core, which was that the federal government was going to set standards and you know override local control, uh, that was the big kind of conservative fear at the time. Now it's all about race and and uh, Black Lives Matter and making white people feel bad essentially. So so critical race theory is the big thing. But it's ironic. I mean, some of these bills that are being introduced in, in, in school boards or in state legislatures, you know, we've spent several years now talking about cancel culture and how it's run amok and uh, free speech. Yeah. And these bills are, are literally criminalizing the teaching of, you know, things and the way they're written. It's pretty vague. It's like you can't talk about. Yeah. you know, racial problems in the past. There was uh, even a proposal to put body cameras in classrooms to make sure that mm-hmm. teachers aren't teaching <laughs> critical race theory on the sly. Uh, right. So, I, you know, I think that I, I get, I, I always come back to the psychology of this yeah. stuff. And I think this is about people are uncomfortable learning this. They don't want to learn the, this stuff and they don't want their kids to be exposed to it. They would rather live in what Ta-Nehisi Coates called the, the, the dream, uh, you know, the, and so just don't tell me, la, 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 I'm going to plug my ears and, and pretend it's not real. What an age we live in. Teachers are forced to uh, wear a body, cam- a body camera and a carry a gun, both, right, in the classroom. <laughs> there you go. Uh, Pema Levy from Mother Jones, Jeff Dufer, National Journal, Alex Seitzwald, NBC News. Thank you. Thank you so much for a great survey of the news of the week. Before we let you go, all, with everything we're covering, there's always at least one story that makes you stop dead in your tracks and say, oh, my God, look at that. This is great. This is funny. This is sad. Uh, your favorite story of the week. Um, Jeff, let's start off with you. Dennis Kucinich. <laughs> He's the, back. Right? The one-time boy <laughs> mayor of Cleveland wants another shot more than 40 years later. Um, remember he led the city into default last time he was mayor, which is when he was in his early thirties. Um, and he got crushed in the Ohio gubernatorial primary a couple years back, but no matter, he, he wants, he wants at the job again. And I have a theory, Bill, it has something to do with the UFOs. (laughs) (laughs) Kucinich, of course, you may remember used to hang out with Shirley MacLaine. Oh yes. And MacLaine revealed in her book. Uh, that the Ohio Congressman Kucinich had uh, seen a UFO and felt, quote, a connection in his heart and heard directions in his mind, unquote. <laughs> so my theory is that he has he has received a sign from from his uh, his alien overlords, and it is time to act. Dennis, call home. Um, <laughs> <laughs> is he actually running? He said running. I hadn't yeah, seen that. He's running, running for, for he's running for mayor. Oh, my God. There you go. Pema, top that if you can. <laughs> that's that's pretty good. Um, I actually I don't mean to go back to the critical critical race theory discussion, but there was a really that's great fine. story on it um, that I recommend from NBC News called Critical Race Theory Battles Invade School Boards with Help from Conservative Groups. Um, and but really, it's this fascinating story about uh, what happened uh, in Maine, when a parent decided that this was being taught in his schools and he was basically going to troll the school board and get Tucker Carlson involved. And it, it, it really kind of shows how this is like this completely like bogus, but like 
also very intentionally manufactured mm. and um, well-funded uh, sort of campaign to get local communities riled up over this issue. Uh, it's really sort of a fascinating dive into into what's happening. So if our conversation intrigued you, I encourage you to to go follow up and read that story. Well, that's a good follow up to what we talked about. How about you, Alex? Uh, well, first of all, thank you to Pema for promoting uh, NBC. <laughs> now I feel bad. It's a great. It is a great story. I, I will. I will second that. Uh, the thing that I was going to mention, though, is a what I think is just a good thing for the world, hopefully, uh, which is that the Ford F one fifty Lightning, that's the electric oh, pickup yes. truck, they have more than a hundred thousand reservations uh, for that already. So you can you can pay. It's a hundred dollar refundable. Uh, deposit it just kind of huh. puts your place online that the truck isn't coming out till next year, but I think it's a really interesting. Uh, I, I don't know that Ford is doing that. You know, this is the the, the best selling vehicle of the past like thirty years. Yeah. It's the best selling yeah. truck of right. the past fifty years, and if you can win over pickup truck drivers to electric vehicles, yeah, that's that's your most skeptical audience. You know, if if you can win them over and you can get the the best-selling vehicle of all time, I think you go a huge way towards electrifying the uh, American, you know, auto fleet. Uh, so I think that's just cool. I think it's a cool uh, truck. I think it's a great product. And I, and like, you know, I, I've worked construction jobs. I've, I, I know people who drive pickup trucks and like, they are, they like gadgets, they like cool things. And if you can just offer them a better product, uh, I think you can get a lot of those people to, to switch. Uh, I think that's uh, great news. And remember, Joe Biden drove that truck, right? And what did he say? This sucker's fast or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> Indeed. Well, I have to tell you, uh, what stopped me this week was reading, uh, in a sense, no surprise, but my favorite story was saying that Jared Kushner has a book deal. He's got a book deal uh, with a public conservative publisher named Broadside, uh, a new book uh, in which the publisher says, and Kushner says, uh, I find this almost laugh out loud funny. He is going to tell the truth about the Trump White House. <laughs> I think that's sort of an oxymoron. For, for a change. <laughs> uh, oxymoron, right? Truth about the Trump White House. But uh, what really made the story come alive is the, you can imagine, uh, the Twitter response. I'm sure some of you uh, have seen it. Um, he, someone called Jared Kushner an emerging fiction writer, uh, which I liked. Um, someone else asked whether a box of crayons came with each book or you had to buy that separately. <laughs> uh, and then there are a lot of people who were, um, uh, you know, wondering what the title of, as yet unnamed, the title of the book would be. My favorite was Staring into Space, a Full-Time Job. <laughs> I remember seeing the pictures of Jared Kushner. That's exactly what he looked like at any rate. So uh, check it out. Uh, Jared Kushner will not be a guest on the Bill Press Pod. I can guarantee you that. But uh, I want to thank you again, uh, Pamela Levy, Mother Jones, Jeff Duver, The National Journal, and Alex Seitzwald from uh, MSNBC and NBC News. And thank all the rest of you for listening. It's good to have you with us today heat wave out there to try to stay cool and stay safe and then come back and see us on the next edition of the bill press pod next tuesday we're going to be talking to cnn's don lemon about his new book addressing racism in america uh, how to acknowledge it how to deal with it his new book called this is the fire that's uh, next tuesday on the bill press pod again take care of yourself come back and see us next tuesday on the next edition of the Bill Press Pod.